words come to lead our motivation. Just as that bird fell out of the sky dead during the discussion group completely uh, unexpectedly, suddenly. So too is our life transient like that and death can come very suddenly and unexpectedly. The reason we contemplate death in Buddha Dharma is so that we will make our life meaningful. Because knowing that this great opportunity doesn't last for us ever spurs us to not take it for granted and to really make good use of it. And the best way to use to make good use of it is to familiarize ourselves with the bodhicitta mind, the aspiration for enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. And to actualize bodhicitta and to develop the wisdom that will enable us to attain full enlightenment, we need to have a solid foundation of pure ethical conduct. And so for that reason, we listen to the teachings about the Vinaya and the precepts today. and don't give them back or using sexuality unkindly and wisely it's a big source of conflict talking behind people's back gossiping criticizing people to their faces you know all these kinds of things that people just normally do yeah right normal kind of how you relate to other people and yet this is what causes uh, so many of the difficulties we have with people again and again and again yeah so in Buddhism when we're talking about the value of ethical conduct it's not you know Buddha said thou shalt not do <laughs> this but rather Buddha saw that when we do certain things we wind up unhappy not only now but we create the karma that brings unhappiness in future lives and so, out of compassion, he kind of designated what those things are so we could try and be aware and avoid them. 
So it's for our own benefit, for the benefit of society. It has nothing to do with um, somebody else is going to punish you or you have to be good or else or, you know, these kinds of things that so often as six years old in Sunday school, we thought morality was not. Okay, it's not like that. So yesterday, um, you know, when I was telling the, the story of the Buddha, after he got enlightened, I was saying he, he went around and uh, taught for 45 years. And, you know, the first teaching he gave was on the Four Noble Truths to those five friends who thought he was a flake because he ate some rice and, uh, and stopped his ascetic practices, but he didn't hold the grudge against them and went and taught them. And uh, they attained realization very quickly after that first discourse, and they became the first five Sangha members. And so gradually, as Buddha went around and people heard the teachings and met him, more and more people were attracted to become monastics. And like I said, at that time in ancient India, there was a whole many, many wanderers and monastics from all different sects uh, that practiced all different kinds of teachings under all different kinds of teachers. So he became one of those. And then slowly as his disciples progressed, people would see them or hear their teachings and be attracted to the Dharma and want to ordain. And so you had this burgundy. How do you say the word burgundy? Burgundy. 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 Okay, this burgundy, uh, you know, monastic community that, uh, you know, um, was very wonderful. And at first, there weren't any precepts at all. You know, there were a few uh, kind of points of etiquette that the Buddha taught, you know, like, you know, don't eat with your mouth full and don't spit here and, you know, these kinds of things. Um, But there were no precepts per se. And all of the precepts came about because some monastic was naughty. (laughs) <laughs> okay so they say that there were six naughty monks and six naughty nuns and uh, and due to their kindness we have the precepts today so all the precepts were made uh, due to real life situations you know the Buddha didn't make up some rules to start with but he set down guidelines in response to situations that happen. So the first situation, and it's very interesting to hear the stories of how the precepts came about because, um, you know, they they give you some indication of the culture. And also sometimes the stories are a little bit unusual. So it shows you even in unusual circumstances don't do these things. So there was one monk. He was an only child. And he had been married before he became a monk. And uh, they didn't have any children. And his parents were, like, panicked because their only son had become a monk. There were no 
you know, progeny. So who was going to do the Brahminical rites and everything after they died? And who were they going to pass their property on to? And doing all these rites after an elderly person died was very important, you know, in their uh, Brahminical religion. So they very much wanted their son to have a child. So they said to him, okay, you can be a monk, you've been a monk for a while, but come back, get your wife pregnant, then you can go back to being a monk, you know, and that way we'll have some grandchildren. And, yeah. So this monk, not very smart, um, did it, <laughs> and, uh, when, and then some other uh, monks heard about what he did and reported it to the Buddha. And the Buddha called uh, this monk to him. And whenever there was something going on, you know, the Buddha didn't start out talking to the person saying, beep, 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 how dare you do that? He always, said, he always would say, uh, is it true that you did that? And then the person would say, yes. And then the Buddha would scold him. <laughs> but he always scolded with uh, much compassion because it was clearly for the person's benefit. And so, you know, that's how the first precept, the one of celibacy, got established due to that certain circumstance. Okay? So what I find interesting in this story is that not, I don't think so many people, you know, the reason they're going to sleep with somebody is because they want their parents to have progeny to do the, the Brahminical rites. You know, they usually, you know, if they break this, it's because their minds complete, their body are completely uncontrolled and they're not thinking, you know. It's just like pleasure, give me some. Um, so to me, this, the fact that the story is a little bit unusual, you know, it wasn't just seeing somebody and jumping in bed. It was, um, it indicates that even when you think somebody could possibly have a good reason for sleeping with someone, like making your parents happy, that that isn't a good reason. Okay. Yeah, so don't use the reason of making your parents happy <laughs> as a reason to, to break your precepts. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember which one came, came next, but there's an unusual story also about the killing one. Because the Buddha had, you know, in the mindfulness of the body practice, he uh, taught the meditation of thinking about uh, the insides of the body and how foul the body is. And so some of the monks were doing this um, meditation quite regularly, and they didn't understand it properly. And so while generating disgust with their body, which was good, they didn't then go to renouncing samsara. Instead, they stayed in this thing of my body's just disgusting and I want to get rid of it. Okay? So that's not the purpose of the, of the thing of just my body's disgusting and I want to get rid of it. It's to generate renunciation from samsara. But they didn't do that. Okay? So they're sitting there feeling that their body's disgusting. They want to die. They want to get rid of this cumbersome body. And so they would ask another monk, please, out of compassion, kill me so I can get rid of this body. Mm -hmm. So another monk, again, 
not thinking too wisely, said, well, somebody asked me out of compassion to please kill him so he can get rid of this body, which is a big burden. And so he did that. Okay? So, uh, and then other monks started asking him. And so pretty soon, this one community monks was getting pretty small. And, you know, the Buddha asked what was going on, or, you know, he was told. And then again, he called that monk to him and said, are you doing this? And then the Buddha said, no, that's not what you do. You know, you don't kill people. And, um, and so he, so again, he, here he established the precept against taking, the taking of human life. And again, it's an unusual situation, isn't it? It wasn't just a monk got mad at somebody and because he was mad, he, you know, killed him. That's what you would think, you know. But it was an unusual thing where, you know, somebody said, please kill me. So even if somebody says, please kill me, still, you don't kill them. Okay? Yeah. And these stories are quite interesting. The one about uh, lying, and here the, the uh, type of lying that is a defeat, which makes you lose your vows completely. The story was that there was a famine in the land, and... Uh, so the, the groups during the rainy season, you know, different groups of monks will stay in different places. And then after the rainy season, they would all come together again for teachings and so on. So uh, after the rainy season, they all came together. And one group who had been staying at one locale, they were very well nourished. Everybody else was extremely thin because there was a famine in the land. And so the lay people didn't have very much food to, to give to them. So they were looking at the ones who were very well fed, who were very round and comfortable, and said, what happened to you guys, you know? How, did, how come you're, there's a famine and, and you look so well fed? And uh, these monks said, well, uh, we just told the lay people that we had... Uh, realized the first jhana, that we had clairvoyant powers, that so that one of us was a stream enter and the other one was a once returner and another one was a non returner, another one was an arhat. These are stages of the path. And uh, and so the people respected us and they gave us lots of food. Well, when the Buddha found out about this he wasn't too happy because these monks had lied, deceiving, you know, people, um, talking about spiritual attainments they didn't have in order to get food, in order to get wealth, essentially. And so this story shows, too, that even in a situation that when you're hungry, that, you know, where you could think possibly lying might be okay if you're really hungry, even then, you don't lie about your spiritual attainments. Okay. Uh, so all the precepts came into existence due to stories like this. Uh, often, the Buddha would set down one guideline regarding a situation. People would keep that one very literally, 
But then another situation would happen, and keeping it literally would bring a new problem, which would be reported to the Buddha. And then, so sometimes the Buddha would revise certain precepts in order to show, okay, in this situation you do that, but do this, but in that situation you do that. Okay? Um, so, for example, uh, there was one where, there's one precept, I think this was one is more for the monks, where you don't stuff cushions with a certain kind of wool, you know, with black wool. Uh, but uh, somebody, there was, and that was because black wool was very precious in a certain area. But then uh, somebody else in an area where uh, black wool was very plentiful couldn't stuff their cushion with that and it became a hardship whereas white wool was very scarce so then the Buddha said okay in a place where black wool is plentiful use that in a place where white wool is plentiful use that but don't use the other one in a place you know where it's scarce so you came to see these kinds of um, adaptations or modifications um, of, the, of the precepts. Some of the precepts, you really have to read the story in order to understand why it was made. Um, for example, there's one precept that the nuns have about not eating garlic. So you would think, you know, why can't he eat garlic? Just the nuns? Yeah. Most can have garlic. Yeah. Well, yeah. But if you if you take the Chinese Bodhisattva vows, you you can't do that. Okay. But we're not talking about the Chinese Bodhisattva vows. We're talking about the Pratimoksha vows right now. So the story behind it um, was that uh, there was one nun, uh, and a donor regularly gave her alms, and he uh, had a garlic field. And he said to her one day, oh, please come sometime and pick some garlic, garlic. And if you have a few friends, they can pick a few garlic too. So she comes back and she brings this friend and that friend and the other friend and so many friends. Yeah, tons of friends. They all start picking garlic. And they don't just take a few garlic. They take ones for their parents and for their brothers and their sisters and for the Buddha and for other monks and nuns. And pretty soon, there's no garlic left in the donor's field. Okay. When the Buddha heard about this, then he said the nun shouldn't eat garlic. You can see by this that actually the precept has nothing to do with eating garlic. The precept is about being greedy. Okay, so there's some precepts like this that you have to understand what's going on. Okay, and then some precepts where you really have to see the uh, the cultural um, climate, you know, behind a certain precept to understand why there was one. For example, there's one about not riding in vehicles, you know, and that's because. Uh, in ancient India, and actually until not so long ago in India, and still you see it if you go there, you will see rickshaws pulled by human beings or carts pulled by animals and they're getting whipped. 
And so because it's causing so much distress to other living beings to pull the vehicles, then the monastics aren't allowed to ride in vehicles. Also, because at that time it was only the very, very wealthy people who could afford a vehicle. And so if you had a vehicle, you were, you know, often driving through the crowds with your nose in the air. Which, you know, clearly wasn't very good for monastics either. So nowadays, you know, our vehicles aren't pulled by human beings. Um, You know, so is this a precept we have to keep literally? I would think not, because it would actually impede doing many other Dharma activities. Uh, But the, the way I interpret it is, okay, don't ride in a vehicle if it's going to cause undue stress or tension or physical harm to somebody. Okay? And don't choose the vehicles you ride in according to what brand they are and if they're nice and if you can be seen riding in a Beamer or a Rolls or a, you know, a Jaguar or whatever it is, you know. So if somebody offers you a ride, you know, you can accept it. But don't, ex- don't go around looking for who has the nicest car and then hint around to have a ride in that car so that when you arrive in some place, everybody can see you arriving in this very expensive car and think, oh, so-and-so has some really important benefactors supporting them. You know, that kind of mind state clearly is not a very good monastic mind. Okay? So there's many of the precepts like this that, that you have to, uh, you know, understand the culture and then consider how to really live them. Uh, in this day and age. Now, every time the Buddha um, set up a new precept, he would talk about ten advantages of establishing precepts. So that's what I'm going to talk about now. And it's, it, you know, I find it quite an inspiring teaching, you know, kind of, because he, and he repeated this every time when he uh, established a precept. So there's, um, uh, if we talk about it in in detail, there's three major topics, okay, which are to promote harmony within the Sangha, to transform society, and to bring about individual liberation. And then each of those three main topics have some more detailed points. So that's what I'm going to talk about now. So, uh, and one thing that, that is important to remember as we're going through the, these advantages of establishing the precepts, that the Buddha set up the precepts for ordinary human beings. He didn't set up the, these, the pratimoksha. Pratimoksha is this, that's the Sanskrit word for individual liberation. It pertains to these kinds of precepts as differentiated from the bodhisattva precepts and the tantra precepts, okay? So the Pratimosa precepts were set up for ordinary people, not for Aryas, not for people who had clairvoyant powers, you know, but for ordinary people like us. And they're set up in a, in a very kind of earthy way, yeah, with real life uh, situations. Okay, so uh, the, the first major point was to promote harmony within the Sangha. That's one reason. 
Okay, so that, that has three points under it. So one is to direct the monastics. In other words, um, having precepts helps the monastics direct their physical, verbal, and mental actions in a particular way. It gives you, the precepts give you, gives you guidelines about what to do and what not to do. You know, so it helps you uh, avoid things that are naturally negative. It helps you avoid deeds that are just unbecoming because you're a monastic. Okay, so it gives us um, direction. The second uh, sub-point is that it makes the monastics peaceful and happy. And that's because the precepts are what hold the Sangha together. Okay, We, we all share in the precepts. We practice the precepts together. And so doing that together, it creates a feeling of community and it makes the monastics peaceful and happy. You know, because we're sharing something in common and because by keeping the precepts, we live together more harmoniously. Okay? And then the third sub-point uh, in that one of promoting harmony within the Sangha is to protect the monastics and that means that practicing the Dharma and the Vinaya harmoniously together protects us from destroying the Dharma or from creating disturbances in the Sangha community. Okay. So this is, is quite uh, important. It's not just to direct the monastics. It's not just to make us peaceful and happy. But to avoid creating disturbances amongst each other when we live together and to avoid the monastics causing degeneration to the Buddhist teachings. Okay. So the monastic community is really predicated on equality. People who uh, have the same level of ordination, you know, they all have one kind of vote. There are different levels of ordination, yeah, but within the same level, everybody has one kind of vote. Um, everybody keeps the same precepts. Everybody, you know, we try to care for each other in an equal way. We share offerings in an equal way. And so harmony is very much based on this equality that we share. And so the precepts help us to maintain that kind of harmony, that kind of equality, because we're all practicing the same guidelines. If you had some some people practicing, you know, some of the precepts and another group practicing other precepts and the third group you know practicing other ones it'd be very difficult for them to live together because they'd be you know they'd have different kind of guidelines that that directed their behavior but practicing the precepts together makes everybody harmonious it also you know has a standard for behavior so you know what to expect of your fellow monastics and it builds a kind of trust that, okay, you know, these people have these precepts and so I trust them to keep their precepts. So, for example, I know if I leave my things around, nobody's going to walk off and steal them. Um, you know, nobody's in the community is going to lie to me. People are going to tell the truth. So it builds a kind of trust because you're all keeping the the same precepts and living in, the, in a certain way. At the same time, however, we, we all know that not everybody's perfect and people make mistakes, and I'll come to that in a minute. Okay, But it does build a certain kind of trust because you 
you know everybody's trying and that you know more times than not people are really going to be keeping their precepts and you can trust them to do that and so relax around them okay so that's how it pre- prevents disturbance in the Sangha community um, because it keeps us from doing negative actions you know like you don't go in somebody's room and say you know I want you out of this room because I'm staying here you know that there, we have a precept against doing that okay you don't throw somebody out of a room because you want it yeah so all kinds of things like that that, that just create harmony also the keeping the precepts and you know therefore the Buddha having set up the precepts prevents the degeneration of the Dharma and the degeneration of the Dharma we, we often think oh Dharma degenerates because of external forces you know political forces or you know economic things or whatever sometimes that you know those kinds of things can severely affect the Sangha but often you know what degenerates the Dharma is the practice of the people who are already Buddhists because if we don't practice well then society loses faith in the Dharma okay if we don't practice well we're degenerating the Dharma and we're degenerating other people's faith in the Dharma okay and so what if you really treasure the Buddhist teachings and you see how precious they are then you don't want to do anything that could possibly degenerate the teachings because you see that they're so precious and you don't want people to think badly of the teachings you don't want people to just scorn the Dharma because you know it's not good for them so from your side you behave properly out of caring consideration for, for other people and so that the Dharma will exist for many many years now often when we first ordain and when we first begin to practice we don't think about the Dharma existing for many years at least I didn't you know when I first uh, joined the Sangha I just thought oh here's all this good stuff what can I get and my criteria uh, you know for, for making many decisions or, or for discriminating what I want and don't want is what's going to help my Dharma practice Okay, so that was the foremost thing. What you know, my dharma practice. Yeah. Okay, I still had you know my my happiness, my sense pleasure, my food, and those things. You know that I was still I was trying to deal with. But now there's a new one. My dharma practice. Yeah. And so, oh, well, where can I go to study that's good for my dharma practice? Where can I do retreat that's good for my dharma practice? What kind of work can I do in the monastery that's going to help my Dharma practice? Yeah. So constantly, constantly, what's good for me and my Dharma practice? There was no thought of, you know, Buddhism existing for hundreds and thousands of years in the past and the future. There was no thought of having to sustain the teachings and pass them down. There was just the thought of what can I good what good things can I get out of this? What can I take? What can I get? 
What really made the difference for me was when I took the Bhikshuni vow um, and became fully ordained. And that made me realize that now, well, it made me realize, first of all, that I was able to take the ordination because of 2,600 years of people who had been practicing before me and that only due to their kindness and their having kept the precepts and kept the lineage was I, did I have access to get ordained now. And so this is a feeling of gratitude for 26 centuries of, of predecessors. And then this feeling, well, I'm alive now. I have some responsibility to pass this on to other people. So it isn't just about what I can take, what I can get, what's good for my Dharma practice, how this is going to benefit me. It's about something actually that's much bigger than me, because I'm not going to be around very long. The continuity of the Dharma, I want to be around a long, long, long time, because that's very precious and that can benefit people. So I want to really act in ways that are going to support the existence of the Dharma and not degenerate it and allow this lineage to, to exist and to get passed down. Okay. So it was a whole different perspective for me. Completely different, you know. And so sometimes you hear, you know, because in the Tibetan tradition they don't have the lineage for the full ordination of women. The women can uh, become just novices. Uh, and in the Theravada tradition, it's even worse. They, uh, well, some countries, they can take ten precepts, but they aren't quite considered monastics. Other countries like Thailand, they only take eight precepts, and they're not considered monastics. And the women spend most of the time serving the monks in the monastery. So uh, sometimes, you know, in trying to encourage some of the people to look outside the Tibetan tradition to get the full lineage of uh, ordination for women, sometimes they say, well, why should I do it? You know, I have everything here. I have wonderful teachings here, wonderful teachers here. I'm happy with my present ordination. Why do I need to get a higher ordination? Okay, people say that. And actually, sometimes when uh, women ask their teachers, can I, in the Tibetan tradition, can I take the bhikshuni vows? The teachers are very conservative. And they say, oh, you don't need to take the full ordination. You would be happy and content with your novice ordination. Of course, it begs the question on why the men need to take full ordination. Okay. Um, why can't they also be content with a novice ordination? Um, but when, you know, so I see sometimes, uh, including Western women, really, you know, thinking, well, no, it's not so important to be fully ordained. I have to go to the Chinese or Vietnamese tradition, you know, why should I do that? But just from my own personal experience, I know that it made a huge difference going from being a novice to uh, a bhikshuni. A huge difference. And the main difference was this one of, now I am responsible. Now it's not just about me and what I can take and what others give to me. 
Now it's my responsibility to uphold the system, to uphold the lineage, to uphold the precepts, to pass it on so that future generations of people can come. So I'm here because there's this whole big wave of 26 centuries worth of practice, and I can't let it crash. I can't let that wave break. I have, you know, I, I came along and had the privilege of, you know, being scooped up and sitting on top of it, getting all these teachings. I have to keep it going for all the people who are going to come after me. So that was a huge change between being a novice and a bhikshuni. Really enormous. And so I think, you know, the others, two of you have taken, you've experienced very big shifts too due to that. Okay? So... It's the kind of thing, often, you know, also lay people will say, well, why, why do I need to take monastic precepts? I can practice very well as a lay person. And that's very, very true. Very true. There's no problem in that. Yeah. But also, if you practice as a monastic, it gives you the ability to sustain this, you know, the, these precious teachings and this system into the future. And that's a, a it's res- responsibility and it's a privilege. Okay. I didn't I think I was going to say that much on this point. <laughs> okay. But, you know, you can see how keeping the precepts protects the monastics in general, the community, as well as prevents degeneration of, of the Dharma. Then our second major point was to transform society. Okay? And so here the two subpoints are to inspire those without faith and to advance the practice of those with faith. Okay, so how do we as monastics transform society? Very often people think of monastics and joining a monastery as leaving society. Okay. Now it's true. Actually, you know, the ceremony is not the ceremony of leaving a society. It's the ceremony of leaving the home life. That's what you're leaving. Okay. It's called the the going forth ceremony. Is you know when you take your your novice vows, your novice precepts, you're going forth from home life to homeless life. Yeah. You're not going forth from society to be totally independent of society because such a thing does not exist. Okay, We always exist in relationship to other living beings. No matter where we go, no matter what we're doing, we're always existing in relationship to others. So we never leave society if you consider society this broad community of sentient beings. We may not do everything that regular people in society do, but we're not escaping from society. We're not leaving society. Because part of the reason the Buddha set up the precepts was to inspire those without faith and to deepen and increase the uh, practice of those who do have faith. Okay, which shows the monastics exist right in the middle of society, and part of our job of keeping the precepts is to provide inspiration 
for the rest of society to show some kind of example. You know? And, you know, we have, when I was saying that we don't exist independent of society, it's very true because where do new monastics come from? Yeah. They don't drop down in balloons. Okay, parachuting from the sky. They come from broader society. Where does our food come from? It also doesn't come from the sky. It comes from people in broader society. Where do our robes come from? Our shelter, our medicines. You know, these all come from the people in society. So we exist very much related to society. You know, you're not shunning society. Because we're, as a monastic, because we're completely dependent on people. Okay? So, we may not participate in all the worldly things, but certainly we try and maintain a very good and warm connection with ordinary people, whether they're Buddhist or not Buddhist. And so, by keeping our precepts, that means that we're, you know, going to have a, a good ethical conduct. We won't be harming other people. And if we practice some of the, the some of the precepts have to do with etiquette. So they may, they make you into a person who has very good demeanor, you know, who's kind of graceful in how we carry things out. And so that provides a good example to other people, and people are inspired by it. Um, and we get uh, letters from people who say, you know, I'm so glad to know that you people are there cultivating love and compassion in this tumultuous world. You know, I wish I could be there with you. I can't, but I'm so glad that you're there doing that. Okay? So it gives people so much inspiration to think that there's a group of people who are trying. We're not perfect. But we're trying. So that's inspiring for people, whether these people are Buddhists or not Buddhists. Yeah. And so we're, we're seeing this now as in the last year we've become much more active in our local communities. And like last, uh, last weekend? Was it just last week? Weekend before last. You know, how I was on this uh, radio show with this Christian minister yeah so these kinds of things people who aren't Buddhist kind of think oh something's going on up there at Shravasti Abbey you know what's happening and they they want to know you know and through the meditation classes in the local communities which are designed for people who are not Buddhist then people learn something oh I don't always have to get so stressed you know I can sit quietly I can come back to my breath you know, and they learn about loving compassion, releasing stress, things that have nothing, you know, where they don't have to learn any Buddhist theory per se, you know, and they can keep their own religion, but they come to appreciate the Buddhist teachings and respect the Buddhist teachings because they see things like this. Okay? So that's the meaning when it says that's how we transform society, you know, by being that kind of Example. On the other hand, you know, if we were to go into town and, you know, kind of like, you know, get out of the car, oh, you know, and walk around, you know, I want this, I want that, give me this, give me that, you know, 
and, uh, you know, go out to this restaurant and that thing and, you know, go out to the bar and (laughs) everything. Then what kind of idea are people going to get about the dog? You know, it's like, you're not a good example for my kid. You know, you're not a good example for me. I I want to stay away from you. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can really see how just by how you live it provides an example to people that can be very beneficial. And you never know, you know, who you're affecting. I mean, sometimes people will come up to you and they'll say, are you a Buddhist? And, you know, and then start asking you questions. And sometimes they'll stare at you and, um, you know, they, they do all sorts of things. But it, it provides some kind of example. And often, uh, you know, people really are interested in what you're doing. I always find it very, very sweet. I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me, women have come up to me um, and said, don't worry, dear. It'll get better when the chemo stops. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they think as well. Yeah. Um, but it, it provides. But they're so kind and compassionate. I mean, just really reaching out to a stranger and saying that. And then you know, I say, oh, the Buddhist nun. Yeah. Or people. people Oh, I really like that outfit. <laughs> really, that that happens, and not just once, more than once. Really, that <laughs> Not everybody can wear their hair like that, but it looks really good on you. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. Gives you points of, of contact with people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or every so often you're you're in a store or an airport, you know, is where I usually am. And there's some kid that's just screaming to high heaven and you know, mom's frantic. And I'll go up and you know, start talking to the kid, and the kid is like <laughs> you know, <laughs> it kind of shocks them that <laughs> they stop crying. <laughs> yeah. Or every once in a while, you walk by and somebody goes, "Mommy, that lady doesn't have any hair." <laughs> so, yeah, all sorts of things. Yeah. Hare Krishna. I had one person walk up to me in, in SeaTac Airport. I'm getting off on a tangent, I know. But um, I was just sitting there reading, waiting for my flight, and somebody walks up to me with a big smile. And I'm frantically going, oh, she must know me. Where do I know her? Because I'm really bad with names and things. Oh, who is it? And she just comes up to me and she says, it's Jesus. <laughs> that when 
you don't wear your robes. <laughs> you see what you're missing? <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, it's very much seen that, that we have the opportunity to affect society in a good way. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why the Buddha set up the precepts. Okay, then the, the third um, category here or the third main purpose, was to bring about individual liberation. And so that has some sub-points. So the first two are to restrain the restive and to stabilize those with a sense of integrity. Okay, so the restive, the people who can't control their energy, who are all over the place, who lack mindfulness and introspective awareness, You have to restrain them because when you have precepts, then it's like, okay, there's precepts here. I have to look at what I'm doing. And then also to um, stabilize those with a sense of integrity. So people who have a sense of their own integrity and want to behave properly, then the precepts also help to stabilize that sense of integrity. So these two points talk a lot about... um, how to uh, resolve conflict in the Sangha and how to uh, resolve wrongdoings. Because like I was saying before, we're not all perfect. And the Buddha didn't expect us to be perfect. If we could keep the precepts 100% perfectly, we wouldn't need them. But their purpose is to restrain the restive and to stabilize those with integrity, okay? So again, it's for ordinary beings, and we need these kinds of things. And so, um, you know, it's expected that certain precepts will get transgressed. Of course, we try our very best not to transgress the root precepts, because if we transgress those completely, then we're expelled from the Sangha. We're out, and there's no further chance to become a monastic in that lifetime. And, of course, we try not to commit the second category uh, of in, in importance of precepts. Uh, those are called the suspensions, and uh, those are also, you know, very serious things that that we could do to, you know, that are improper actions. But they're not quite as bad as the ones that cause defeat. But you're temporarily suspended from your usual role and position in the Sangha if you do those. But then we have other categories of precepts, lapses, and um, certain lapses where if we get uh, articles of use in an you know, inappropriate way, then we have to give them up. Then there's rules of etiquette and all sorts of things like that. So it's much easier to to transgress those other, you know, smaller ones um, in the sense that they're, they're more detailed and they don't have any, so many conditions to meet for, for it to be uh, a transgression. So... It's very natural that, that we do these things. Of course, we try our best not to, because how are, how are these precepts going to restrain our rest of mind if we don't try? Okay, so we have to really try. And then, you know, when we have some success, it's, you know, the, the precepts can stabilize uh, us, stabilize our integrity. But there's a whole 
process that, you know, um, according to the class of precept that we transgress, there's a way that you restore the precepts, you know. And that goes for everything except the root ones, which there's no way to restore if, you, if you've broken them completely. Okay? So, you know, there's a whole process of making amends. And the process is, is predicated on not concealing our mistakes. Yeah. That's hard. We don't want other people to know our mistakes. Do we? You know. It's embarrassing to, to, to tell our mistakes to other people. But uh, sometimes the fact that we're embarrassed is what helps us to restrain from doing it. Because, you know, if I do this, I'm going to have to tell somebody. And I, uh, I don't want to have to admit doing this in public, you know. So it's like, I better not do it, then I don't have to admit it. Okay? So that, that kind of embarrassment can, can, uh, can help us. Um, but then there's, you know, we have to uh, reveal our mistake. We have to confess it confess it and then you know there's different ways to make amends sometimes just the, the simple action of confessing it makes an amend sometimes like I said if we gathered uh, gained an article improperly we have to give it up then on the more with the suspensions then you have to go through a very complicated uh, process of you know, being away from the community and contemplating your behavior and serving the community and then having to be rehabilitated <coughs> in a ceremony um, with many people. So, you know, it's like, oh, all these people are going to... If I have to be rehabilitated from doing this action, that all these people are going to know that I made a really serious goof hmm maybe I won't do this action you know it like helps you it helps you okay okay but then of course you know you trust people not to criticize and judge you but our, our own inner sense of you know like ugh <laughs> I don't want to have to this <laughs> okay so um so those things, are, are they help us towards our own personal liberation by helping us keep good ethical conduct. And then um, they help us to eliminate our present defilements and to prevent defilements from arising in the future. So those are the last two sub-points under this. So by preventing the arising of, of present, or eliminating present defilements, because to keep the precepts, we have to learn to work with our mind, you know. So you have to work with your defilements to keep the precepts. So it eliminates any present defilements that are, that are arising, like jealousy or anger or greed or attachment or lust or whatever. And then it helps to prevent those kinds of afflictive minds from arising in the future because as you practice now uh, and become more familiar with the antidotes and start to really change your mind, then, you know, you're forming new mental habits and that prevents those same afflictions from arising with the same intensity in the same way in the future. And so that also is very, very helpful for us on the path to liberation. Okay. So you can see that the precepts 
you know, they, they are very good for creating harmony within the Sangha, but they also benefit and transform people beyond the Sangha in society, and they also help us as individuals. Okay, so all these different levels, from the individual to the Sangha community to broader society. Okay, and so for all these kinds of reasons, then the Buddha set up the precepts. So that was uh, the advantages in detail. Then uh, the uh, general advantage, it focuses on the ultimate goal. Okay, and the ultimate goal is for the Dharma to be forever sustained. In other words, for the Buddhist teachings to continue to exist in a pure manner forever. And so that sense of responsibility that I was uh, talking about before to, at minimum, keep, you know, good ethical conduct as best as we can and then to practice as well as we can so that the teachings remain alive because the continuity of the teachings, there's the what we call the the scriptural dharma and the realized dharma. The scriptural dharma, that's the words of the Buddha, you know, that are written down in the text, the words that are spoken, you know, when we recite a text. Yeah, that's one level of the dharma continuing, having access to all those words. But another way that the dharma continues is through it being realized. Okay, so gaining the realizations and then, you know, one person who has realizations can do so much good in society in terms of teaching, you know, whereas when we don't have realizations, we still do good, but it's not to the same extent, you know, because you don't have the abilities because you don't have the realizations. Okay, so, you know, it's easier to sustain the scriptural teachings by doing the recitations and reading the text, but to sustain the realized Dharma is a whole different level. And that's very important that, you know, we try to do that. Of course, you know, attaining realizations, they don't come quick, cheap, and easy. Yeah, but at least we can create the causes for that. And if we create the causes for it, then if it, you know, if the realizations don't come this lifetime, they'll come next lifetime or the lifetime after that. The basic thing is just to keep creating the causes. And if we do that, then improvement is guaranteed, you know, because causality functions the way it does. Okay? So the ultimate goal is to sustain the Dharma. I thought it interesting the ultimate goal was not our own personal enlightenment. Yeah, because that one, you know, the benefits were already covered before when I just talked about it, okay, to bring about our individual liberation. The ultimate benefit is to sustain the teachings for the welfare of all living beings. Okay, so those are the ten advantages uh, of establishing the precepts. So we have a few minutes for questions or comments. Yeah. About the nuns and the garlic, why did they get that vow when they would have already been breaking the vow of not cutting plants? Okay, so why did they get the one about the garlic if they would have already been breaking the one about not cutting plants? Maybe the one about not cutting plants hadn't been made at that time. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, speak a little louder. Um, do you think that lay like, people could sustain the Dharma too, or do you think it's not possible? Okay, so do I think lay people can sustain the Dharma too, or is it not possible? Yes, I think they can sustain it. And there's many ways to sustain the, the, of course, one way is to support the monastic community. But aside from that, and this is one good thing I think that you really see with Buddhism coming to the West, is that the lay people are really practicing much more actively. You know, often in Asia, the lay people don't practice so much. They just see their role of supporting the monastics. Um, in Taiwan, that's starting to change because the, the Sangha is really reaching out and educating the, the lay people. Um, and I think that's something really wonderful in the West, is you see lay people really being quite serious about their practice and keeping a daily practice and going on retreats and coming to courses and things like that. And so definitely, you know, that's quite beneficial for the existence of the Dharma. Yeah. Traditionally, you know, the Dharma has, the Sangha has been kind of the ones who, who uh, are entrusted with keeping the Dharma in the sense that if you have a monastery, then you have an actual physical place that represents the existence of the Dharma. An actual place where if somebody wants to learn the teachings, they know that they can go to learn the teachings, to do retreat, and so on. If you're a lay person living at home, people don't know that they can go to your home to receive teachings. And they probably can't do retreat in your home. Okay? So there might be Dharma centers, you know, and lay people know they, that, that they can come there, so that's very good. But then you often have the Sangha uh, teaching in the Dharma centers, as well as lay, teach, lay people teaching in the Dharma centers. What I think becomes difficult in, in this, and why I think the Sangha is very important, I think we need lay practitioners and Sangha, and we need lay teachers and monastic teachers. I think there's a few ways that it would become difficult if there were only uh, lay teachers, for example. In that, um, first of all, uh, a lay teacher is going to have a middle-class lifestyle, you know, and so they're going to have their house and their mortgage and their car and their car insurance and their hobbies and their social life. They're going to have a lot of possessions, okay, a lot of social obligations. So portraying, um, giving the feeling of living a life of simplicity that's much harder for a layperson because when you live a lay life, you have automatically all these things. Yeah, so it's harder to show the example of renunciation. Having said that, I have there's one couple that I'm, I'm friends with that I have incredible respect for, one lay couple, and they've arranged it. Um, they have their finances arranged. I don't know how, but they have a, arranged so that they have a retreat house. They both have their own rooms. They're, they've been in retreat there many, many years. They come out for a month or two each year and go to His Holiness's teachings and do various things. But, you know, they're really showing an example of very serious lay practitioners. But they're not working at a job and they don't have children. And they don't have a, you know, 
kind of a social life and all these other things that you have to keep up if you're a lay person. Okay? So I think that's one thing that makes it difficult to show, to show that example of a, a simple lifestyle and renunciation. Another thing I think that can be difficult is um, the whole financial part of it in the sense of if you are a lay person and you are earning your living by teaching the Dharma, then you have to have a certain income because you're supporting your spouse and your kids. And, you know, your kids want to go to summer camp and they want designer jeans and, you know, they want a bike and they want all this stuff. So then, you know, is it the responsibility of the Dharma students to provide all these things for the, the Dharma teacher's children? And if the Dharma teacher has to earn a certain amount of money, then it's much easier for them to start charging for teachings. Or even if they don't charge for teaching, if they do things on a dana basis, then it becomes necessary to select to go and lead a retreat or teach people where they'll, you know they'll give you more dana than if you go to another place where the people are poorer or another country where the people are poorer. So that, that can influence, you know, who is able to receive the Dharma and who isn't. Okay. So those are the, the two main challenges I see that I think that lay teachers have. But yes, I think they can practice very well and, you know, contribute to the existence and sustaining uh, of the Dharma. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, you said that um, um, you say what, um, when you're coming together as a Sangha, as an uh, ordained uh, Sangha, mm-hmm. to um, say what you, what kind of mistakes you have done to say it openly, to speak it out. Mm-hmm. Um, is it, if you only do it by yourself, um, it's not, why is it different? Will it not be the same result in the end? If I, I, don't if I would do, um, analyze my um, fault by myself mm-hmm. and not speak it out in, in, to the Sangha, mm-hmm. what kind of difference is it? <laughs> okay, so if we didn't have to say our thing out loud to the Sangha, and we just analyzed it ourselves and confessed ourselves and visualized the Buddha and did that, well, you know, that's a little bit easier on our ego, isn't it? <laughs> yeah? And then it's like, okay, well, it's a bad thing to do, but I, I just confess to the Buddha I visualize, and that Buddha I visualize is always very compassionate. And so if I just do this action again and nobody knows about it, then I just confess and, you know, no, it's fine. But if I have to tell somebody else I did it, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, so it, it just um, it, it helps us to restrain. Now, having said that, not all the Buddhist traditions nowadays actively practice this thing of saying their mistakes out loud. Okay, uh, one Tibetan monk, some people asked him, and he explained that once they tried it, and then everybody started quarreling. Uh, <laughs> So they stopped, you know. But I know in the Theravada tradition that, that they do that. I'm not sure in the Chinese tradition if they do. I should ask about that. 
Uh, they don't usually do in the Tibet in the Tibetan at the uh, posada, the sojo ceremony. You just confess blanketly. I've, I've accumulated innumerable faults of this category and innumerable faults of that category. But you just kind of say it. And so it doesn't make you actually think before you go to the confession, well, what have I done in the last two weeks? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Where this kind of makes you think, what have I done? Mm-hmm. And it's all, um, I think uh, it's also helpful for the community too to learn by these kind of examples. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's very good for the community because, you know, if somebody makes you know, a serious mistake, if we can all talk about it, then we can all learn, okay, well, how do, you, how do you get yourself in that situation and how can we prevent ourselves, you know, as individuals from getting ourselves into a difficult situation in which we're going to break something. So it, it becomes quite good for the community. It also gives everybody a chance to, to really learn to be non-judgmental and be compassionate. Yeah, because if somebody else confesses, you know, there's no reason to look down on them because probably next week it's going to be us. <laughs> and we want them to be compassionate with us and not judge us. Okay, So it, it gives the rest of the community an opportunity to support and to be compassionate. Okay, one more. Um... <laughs> I, I heard that um, all the precepts, um, um, you, uh, as lay person, you can't read as maybe you can't find a oh. word. Can you explain mm. that? Okay. So they say that as a lay person, you're not supposed to read the precepts that the Sangha has. Now that, the Tibetans say that. The Chinese, um, some people say it and some people don't. Uh, and the Theravada everybody, I mean the lay people read the precepts quite freely I think um, the, the reason for uh, the, the, lay, the lay people not reading the precepts, there's two reasons one is and I personally don't, not, I'm not saying I agree with this, but one is that they, if they know what the Sangha's precepts are, uh, then they will become highly critical of the Sangha you know, because they'll know, you know, every mistake we make. Oh, you did, oh, you did this. And it starts a whole lot of bad talking about the Sangha, which is not very helpful for somebody's Dharma practice if they just start picking faults at anybody, you know, let alone the Sangha. So that, that's one reason. On the other hand, you know, it was very clear that, that the Buddha established, many of the stories of the Buddha establishing precepts are because lay people went to the Buddha and complained about the behavior of the Sangha. And so, you know, there is something to be said about the lay people knowing what, what our precepts are because if we know they know, then we might also be a little bit more vigilant. Okay? Um... So there's good and bad sides to that, you know. And in the same way, I know sometimes uh, in some countries, if the Sangha doesn't act properly, then the lay people don't give donations to that temple or they don't give food to, to, to those, you know, particular monastics. So that can be very good in the sense of 
you know, monastics being more conscientious, you know, if the lay people know. But I also understand that if the lay people then become highly critical, it's not good for their mind or for anybody else. Okay. Another reason, which makes more sense to me about why lay people don't shouldn't read the, the precepts, are that uh, sometimes if you read them, you might say, "Oh my goodness, there's so many of them, and there's just they're so hard to keep," and then you get discouraged from taking the precepts. Whereas if you don't know them until after you've ordained, <laughs> then you're already there and you say, okay, well, these other people have managed it. I'll just learn how to keep them. Okay. Myself personally, okay, my own personal feeling about this is I think in the West it is very beneficial for people to know the precepts before they take them. Because that way, people know more about what they're getting into. Yeah, because it's not a Buddhist society, so very often, you know, people just see somebody in robes and they're sitting in the front row and they say, well, I want to do that too. And, and they don't know what it really entails. Yeah, whereas if they had access to the precepts and read them, then they could make a really informed decision about whether to ordain or not. And also, they might act in ways that help the Sangha keep their precepts. Because sometimes you see in the West, too, because Buddhism is new here and the lay people don't know what the Sangha can do and not do, that they act in ways that make it quite difficult for the Sangha to keep their precepts. Why do they think that can't cut flowers? Oh, why can't you cut flowers? Because at the time of the Buddha, the uh, Jains were a very prominent religion, and they believed that plants had consciousness. And so this was kind of a broad belief in general, kind of in society. So just to, even though from a Buddhist perspective, we don't think plants have consciousness, out of respect for that kind of cultural thing, that, that's one reason. Another reason is so that the, Buddha, the monastics wouldn't get involved in doing archi- um, architecture, agriculture. Um, because, you know, it was an agrarian society. That was the basic way that you earned your living, was through agriculture. And if the Sangha got involved in, you know, planting and harvesting and things like that, they wouldn't have the time to practice. And then, Cindy, you had one question. This will be the last one. Okay. Um, which one did I pick? <laughs> um, you can say some more for two. <laughs> you know, no, no. Oh, okay. So, so I guess the one that's at the forefront of my mind is, um, I, I guess I'm confused on how this works because if you're, you receive your original ordination novice ordination, mm-hmm. say in the Tibetan Buddhist mm-hmm. tradition, mm-hmm. and then you go, and let's say you consider a Tibetan Buddhist Lama, like the Dalai Lama, or another Lama, mm-hmm. your root guru, or you have a couple of root gurus, mm-hmm. and then you go get full bhikshuni ordination in a in a different tradition. Mm-hmm. How does that affect, or does it affect your relationship with your root guru? Okay, so if if you're, you know, your root guru is in the Tibetan tradition, and then you take ordination in, or like for, especially for the nuns in the in the Dharma, in another Vinaya tradition. How does that affect your relationship with your root guru? I don't think it would have any effect, 
you know, um, because in in the sense that um, you know the Buddha taught Vinaya. The Buddha did not teach Theravada Vinaya, Dharmagupta Vinaya, Mulasravastavada Vinaya. All these are traditions that evolved afterwards, you know, because the teachings uh, were passed down orally and Buddhism spread into many geographical areas. So, of course, you're going to have different things, you know, some slips of the tongue here and there, and so things get changed. But the, it's, they're surprisingly similar, you know, considering it was an oral tradition. And you had these different traditions too, because you had different Abhi Dharmas coming out of it after the Buddha passed away. But if you have a big mind, the Buddha taught the Dharma, you know? And I feel, first of all, I am a Buddhist. And sometimes I'll go to different places, and um, some places I go, and the, the first question when I, when I walk in is, are you Nyingma Kargigalu or Sakya? And it's like, I'm a Buddhist. Yeah? And so this whole thing of, you know, getting too solid in our identifications, I don't feel that that's really helpful. Yeah? I, uh, to me, the fact that there's so many traditions, it shows the Buddhist skill. And I think it's really beautiful. And I consider myself a Buddhist. And so if these people can give me coordination, that's good enough for me. You know? Would there ever be a problem for someone whose main teacher says, well, you can just be content with the, the um, novice style? I mean, if you're, if you're trying to really follow your teacher's advice. Right. That's why you have to be careful at, at, at which teacher you ask for what about <laughs> okay and you have to also you know be also clear in your mind what do you ask for per, what things do you ask for advice from and what things don't you okay so in my case I went straight to his holiness he gave his permission that's all that was needed because nobody is going to say anything well out loud they won't say anything <laughs> you know um, so that was that was it you know and my other teachers when I came back they all said oh very good very good okay. I could that pe- I'm sorry I keep extending the question yeah. so that people in this community maybe who are studying with you could they get that permission from the Dalai Lama through you? Because of the yeah, I'm, yeah. Well, see, right now, you know, I've been ordained enough years, so I can give the ordination to the people here, the novice ordination to the women. And then for the full ordination, where you need more people, then they can go to Taiwan. So they don't need to ask permission from anybody in the Tibetan tradition to, to or, ordain. And... And um, and I don't need to ask permission from anybody in the Tibetan tradition to ordain, because according to the Vinaya that I follow, I, you know, I've been ordained the requisite number of years. Okay.